0: Hello everyone and welcome to the 163rd episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman, born in peak Jennifer year, so please My friends call me Jag. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways like graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Professor Michael Bailey. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I wanna remind all of you who are joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, You can use the comment section to type in your questions. Go ahead, queue up, start asking your questions. We'll get to as many of them as we can. Professor Michael Bailey is a psychologist, a behavioral geneticist professor, in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. He's been a professor for 34 years. He has been a researcher for four decades. He's best known for his research into the reasons behind sexual orientation and gender dysphoria, along with his 2003 book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. The book was originally nominated by the Lambda Literary Foundation, but when it was determined that the book ran afoul of ever-evolving trans ideological tenets, the nomination was withdrawn. Now, earlier this year, Professor Bailey published a paper called Rapid-Onset Gender Dysphoria – parent reports on 1,655 possible cases in the academic journal archives of sexual behavior, which similarly sparked backlash from trans activists who pressured the journal to retract the publication. We wanted to invite Professor Bailey on the show to delve into the content of his academic work as as well as what his personal experience with cancel culture can tell us about the state of academic and scientific research today, specifically with regards to the prospects of getting a better objective understanding of sexual orientation, gender, as well as more generally with regard to uh, the freedom of scientific inquiry. Michael, thank you for joining us. I'm
1: honored to be here.
0: So I would love to start with your origin story. You were born in Lubbock, Texas, uh, raised outside of Dallas. What inspired you to study clinical psychology and particular what uh, led you to your your specializing in sexual orientation research?
1: I uh, went to college at Washington University, St. Louis. I was a math major Uh, And while I did like some aspects of um, of higher math, I realized that it wasn't going to be for me in the long run because it didn't really connect to real life. (laughs) And in college, I was taking a history class on Freud, the history of Freudian thought, taught by Gerald Eisenberg, who was a fantastic teacher I fell in love with Freud and uh, learned that I could go to graduate school in clinical psychology and possibly, um, you know, pursue that. I went to graduate school at University of Texas at Austin and promptly lost all of my affection for Freud, who is a ter- who was a terrible scientist. Not a great person either, but I was more concerned about his science. Um, And instead, uh, I became impressed by um, things like uh, the evidence for genetic causation on human traits. Um, I was taking... uh, A human sexuality class very small i think there were four people in it uh you know midway through my graduate career and a study came out about a biological theory of homosexuality and uh, i decided to do a follow-up study to that for my dissertation Uh, i very much enjoyed the experience, which was edgy back then. I don't think people today realize how stigmatized homosexuality was back in the mid-1980s. This was Austin, Texas, which, you know, has always had a liberal uh, progressive streak, but it's also had a very uh, conservative streak as well. And uh, I I enjoyed working with gay and lesbian people. Uh, And importantly, there were lots of fascinating questions that were unanswered. And in part, because people were hesitant to go there, both because it was stigmatized and because, uh, well, stigmatized, I guess, personally, people were worried, you know, that or are they going to think I'm gay? And, and also um, politically, it was very mm-hmm. controversial topic well into the 1990s.
0: How quickly we forget, you know, and, and I think that um, it, it still there still is uh, unfortunate stigma and prejudice in some quarters. And I think some of what we're going to get into today um, is how paradoxically and unfortunately, some um, sort of of the aggressive trans ideological overreach is causing a lot of backlash from some quarters of the right, which is, um, you know, going well beyond sort of we don't want our children to be uh, indoctrinated or we we want women's sports to be protected. But um, going to a place that I don't think any of us should really want to go to in terms of Feeling that people that uh, wanna live their what lives a certain way, whether it's orientation or gender identity or whatever, that um they they should be equal before the law. But I, I do feel that that it's it's starting to bleed in, in a regressive way um, that is starting to feel a little bit reminiscent of the the earlier 80s or 70s or 60s. So um before delving into your book, The The Man Who Would Be Queen, let's talk a bit about again, just the course of your career, some of the earlier research that uh, you did, including a series of studies on twins uh, that you co-authored. If I understand correctly, you were looking into research on whether sexual orientation was more of a matter of nature or nurture. What did you find in those early studies? How have those findings held up uh, as your research continued to progress throughout the decades?
1: Yes, I um, was interested in using uh, twins as is common uh, to determine or to estimate the relative importance of heredity and environment um, in causing differences in sexual orientation. And I did, early in my career, I did two... um, studies one on males and one on females that got quite a bit of attention and for both studies i found evidence that genes matter but are hardly the whole story we know they're not the whole story because um much of the time if you start with an identical twin who is homosexual this is true for both males and females, that identical twins twin will be heterosexual. And the only way that can happen, that is an identical twin pair in which one twin is homosexual, the other is heterosexual is due to environmental differences because they share all their genes. So environment certainly must matter. The question is, and still is, what kind of environment makes a difference? And one thing that we have become more and more aware of is that environment isn't what most people think of it is. Think of it as it's not, you know, what your parents read to you or your parents' child rearing philosophy. The most powerful environment is the environment that varies within a family that makes children of the same family different from each other. This includes both social environmental factors such as peer groups that can differ between twins, but it also um, includes biological factors that happen before birth. These are poorly understood, but I think that they are likely the most powerful cause of twin differences related to sexual orientation, particularly among
0: males. Interesting. So I also want to be able to get to the most recent controversy, uh, oh. which you re- read a really fascinating, you wrote a fascinating response to in, in Barry Weiss's Free Press. But first, let's Go back to uh, 2003 when you wrote and published The Man Who Would Be Queen Um, and uh, perhaps we can show that cover again. I apologize, Uh, I was not able to get my hands on a copy of it because they they are few and far in between. Um, so, you know, I'll also be interested to see if at some point you you might uh, think it worthwhile to update the book or to make it available in other uh, formats or or whether or not um, in today's climate that might even be possible, but the book was interesting from a number of perspectives. One is that it draws on the scientific research into both sexual orientation and and gender dysphoria that you and others in your field have published, but at the same time, it's written for a lay audience. Uh, Notably, however, it is published 20 years ago. Uh, Even the terminology has changed. Um, It it was published long before we found ourselves at this cultural moment when there's pressure to state your pronouns, to print. There's nothing wrong with biological males competing in women's sports or uh, risk being outcast as a transphobe. Unfortunately, it's, it's, as I said, not that easy to get a, a one's hands on a copy of the book today with rare copies selling for over $200. So perhaps you can share with our audience what you hope to accomplish with the book and what were some of the key takeaways that you'd hoped uh, readers back then and still today might ponder.
1: I had been interested in studying transsexuals Uh, In the 1990s, never having met one, but having similar assumptions as everybody else that, for example, male to female transsexuals, these were people born male who wanted to become trans women, that they were essentially uh, women trapped in men's bodies, that they were extremely feminine and you know, that it would be fairly obvious why they would want to change sex. Uh, But I met a trans woman who defied that stereotype who was not at all like that. She was clearly, and when I say she, she had been born male, had uh, obtained sex reassignment surgery, And she was clearly sexually motivated. Um, I don't know how much in the nitty gritty I should go into, but when male, she would uh, not only cross-dress, but simulate male anatomy uh, and film herself and become quite sexually aroused. And this was really uh, not consistent with my preconceptions. Then I found out that a friend of mine, guy named Ray Blanchard, who is uh, a very important uh, sex researcher uh, in Toronto, he had studied people like this and we understood what was going on with them. They have something called autogynophilia, auto, self, gyna, woman, philia, love of. These are males who are sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman or the act of imitating women.
0: Which is very different than a two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old boy, right? Who... Yeah, he there's, has there's, yeah. kind of standard gender dysphoria, and they they are disoriented because they do not feel that they are the person inside that everyone is reacting to them as.
1: Yes, Bl- Blanchard developed a uh, taxonomy of transsexualism, male to female transsexualism, and there are two types. Uh, One I will call child onset. These are the little boys who at age two or three, they are extremely feminine. They want to be a girl. They dress as girls. They want to play with dolls. They don't like boys things. And most of them will what we call desist. They will know by the time they're adults, they will no longer desire to change sex Almost all of them will become gay men, but a subset of them, you know, it's unclear what percentage, you know, 20, 10% to 20% will persist. Persist. Mm -hmm. And will decide that they want to uh, transition to the other sex. Autogynophilic transsexuals are very different in their life course. Uh, Their uh, onset, clear onset anyway, is typically in adolescence with the onset of strong sexual arousal. And the most common early sign is that they discover that it is sexually arousing for them to put on women's clothing. Typically, they're Sisters or mothers lingerie look at themselves in the mirror and uh masturbate um and so it's an entirely a sexual thing the uh, these people are not notably feminine the my informant, for example, like to work on cars and talk about hockey <laughs> um so <sighs> And autogynephilic transsexuals in the West are just as common as the other kind, the child onset. And yet, really. So,
0: let's just so to level set. You know, what what are we talking about with early onset? Again, it sounds like predominantly male, uh, two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old who who start out with um, not wanting to have anything to do with male things and wanting to behave in a you know like like a little girl, the vast majority of whom, um, as you say, desist and transition to just being adult, you know, gay guys uh, with the minority uh, persisting and wanting to to live, continue to live a life as a as a uh, a woman or female. So are we talking one in a thousand? I mean, for the early onset, male gender dysphoria, one in ten like what 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 are the numbers?
1: So I'm sorry to seem pedantic about this but there is a distinction that needs to be made and it's between the people who have these risk factors and the people who decide to transition not everybody with a risk factor transitions. The ones who transition, I would call transsexuals. The ones with the risk factors would be, you know, just really feminine boys, really, really feminine boys with gender dysphoria and the other type, uh, males with autogonophilia. Certainly not all of them transition either. So um, how common are the youth with these risk factors it's very hard to say i would guess it's i would guess less than 1% each type now how common are the transitioners back when i first started studying this it was very rare about 1 in 20,000 males was estimated to be transsexual in the sense of getting sex reassignment surgery it seems like that has changed, and it's becoming more common. People are people with these risk factors are going further.
0: Um, so and, let's talk a little bit about the the controversy that what what was the controversial aspect of that first book, and was it a question of early controversy, or that you know it happened when it uh, got the Lambda Literary? Um, foundation
1: award yeah so i um i was aware that some people would find the book controversial because i had um, made public i'd put it on my website uh the portion of my book about transsexuals the book was divided into three parts first was about little boys who want to be girls. The middle was about gay men and the ways that they're feminine and the ways that they're masculine. And the third part was about male to female transsexuals. And it was the third part that got a subset of trans women extremely upset. And um, their fury at me (laughs) was caused by my writing about autogonophilia and endorsing that theory. I believe that these trans women who came after me were themselves autogonophilic transsexuals in denial. And they were in denial uh, and hated autogonophilia theory for two related reasons. First, they believed probably correctly that it's not good PR <laughs> that people would many people would judge them less well if they thought that they had this weird sexual thing than if they thought that they were women trapped in men's bodies. The second, and I think probably more powerful, motivation for their hatred is that autogonophilic gender dysphoria is associated with a very strong wish to be a woman, to be, li- to be a woman, to be feminine, to be like woman, women, and not to be a male with this weird sexual thing. And uh, the theory says that they are males with this weird sexual thing. Uh, and uh, I think that they experienced it as a narcissistic injury. Now, before we go into the next question, I do want to make clear that I received at least as much correspondence by autogonophilic individuals thanking me for finally helping them understand themselves as I received hostile correspondence from people uh, calling me names. On Twitter now, I have many autogonophilic followers, um mainly young uh, who identify as autogonophilic, accept that they are autogonophilic, are really wanting to know what the science tells us, and so on.
0: Well, you had one statement um, in response to the controversy, which I really think has stood the taste, the test of time, and that is. Quote, true acceptance of the transgender requires that we truly understand who they are, right?
1: I, I yes, I would. <laughs> I uh, believe that was true. It still is true.
0: All right. Moving on to your more recent work, could you start by uh, defining for us rapid onset gender dysphoria and contrast it with the kind of um uh gender dysphoria that you described that you had been studying previously that was primarily a, a male very very young phenomenon
1: yes um before i do and this is related i just will say that the child onset case cases with the type also has also occurs in natal females, girls. That was known, and until recently, that was the only type known that happened in natal females. That has changed, and it has changed very recently about the past 15 years, and we've really only been aware of it in the past 10. During that time, natal females who never, as children, seemed to have any problem with their birth sex, many of whom were Quite feminine in into adolescence, they had boyfriends, <laughs> uh, they liked wearing dresses and so on. These girls were suddenly announcing to their parents that they were trans. and many of them had peers who were also announcing to their parents that they were trans. It appears that this is a socially contagious phenomenon, peer-to-peer mainly. It also uh, is related to uh, widespread beliefs that anybody might be trans (laughs) uh, uh, and not be aware of it. Until and that uh, suppression of one's transgender nature leads to all kinds of problems, and that's another thing I haven't yet mentioned. Uh, the girls with rapid onset gender dysphoria are OGD. Um, they tend to have problems, emotional problems. That so, for example, in our study that we'll probably talk about some parents said that. These girls had a high rate of emotional problems that preceded any kind of concerns with gender by four years on average. That's a long time.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about your your paper, what you found uh, with the 1,655 parents. Was this um, a survey-based paper, interview? uh, How long did it take? What was involved?
1: A woman named Susanna Diaz invited me to a small conference uh, in, uh, I think it was 2017. uh, And there were journalists and some uh, academic researchers attending. And Susanna, but that's not her real name. I don't know her real name presented uh, survey results that she had collected from the website parentsofrogdkids.com. And I was impressed with these results and I encouraged her to publish them. She's not an academic. uh, And so eventually we collaborated on this paper, which was published in March in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And it was what the title says. It was Parent Reports on 1,655 Possible Cases of ROGD. And these parents were recruited. uh, They would come to the website. They would see uh, an invitation to take the survey. If you think you're child has this problem, (laughs) which is rapid onset gender dysphoria. She described it as I've described it to you. Please consider uh, taking this survey. Um, And so parents uh, provided data about their children and uh, about the development of the ROGD and what it was like for the family and so on. And uh, I analyzed and wrote up mainly with Susanna's help. Uh, She definitely helped write it as well, Uh, the article. And uh, we submitted it to the Archives of Sexual Behavior, who uh, quite thoroughly reviewed it. Many pages of uh, criticisms that uh, we dealt with by modifying the paper. Uh, it w- it was very thoroughly reviewed, and uh, it was published. And um, immediately, it was attacked uh, by a group of trans activists and their allies, who. Wrote an online letter uh criticizing our study, but also demanding that the editor of the journal who and the editor accepted our paper, his name is Ken zucker that he be fired from editorship uh now zucker is uh, has been controversial among trans activists because he believes that Um, he believes that children who are gender dysphoric, that we should try to treat them for their gender dysphoria and try to reduce it before taking steps to medically transition them. Uh, he is also a superb editor, uh, in the sense that he wants controversial topics to be aired In the journal, both sides, not just one side, I counted 10 different pieces that he has accepted that were directly critical of articles that I had published. Uh, So I have uh, sometimes benefited by critiquing other people, but I've sometimes been a target of criticism. That's the way science should work. But these activists don't want discussion. They want silence about ROGD. And I can tell you why, but I'll pause and see if you have a question.
0: Well, um, I I would like to get into that. Um, So just for a bit of clarification on the study, uh, was it Mainly, so when you say children, was it of all girls, or what was the percentage? If it wasn't, if it was male and female, um, and let me just
1: summarize uh, quickly some of our main findings.
0: mm
1: -hmm. Um, First, we restricted uh, the uh, responses to parents who had children whose uh, children had come out as transgender between the ages of, I think it was 11 and 21. Uh, These youth who parents were reporting on were um, 75% natal female, 25% natal male. And we think possibly a lot of the natal males were uh, not ROGD but autogynophilic. I I can tell you why, but let me proceed with the ROGD. Parents said that these uh, youth had a high rate of emotional problems. Um, About half of them had a formal diagnosis, mainly anxiety or depression. These problems preceded the gender dysphoria, as I said, by about four years on average, and a, over, uh, let's say, a two-thirds of the female cases had socially transitioned, or at least taken steps to socially transition. That means that they had changed their pronouns, their dress, um... the the way they would move, uh, try to talk in a lower voice and so on, Uh, mainly to the other sex, although uh, some of them were non-binary. Interestingly, about half that rate, about only one third of the natal males had socially transitioned. There was a pretty low rate of medical transition uh, by which I mean in this population, hormones. I think uh, the rate in both males and females was only about 7%. Now, what are the predictors of transition? Well, it turned out that for both kinds of transition, social and medical, one predictor was emotional problems, the The youth who had more emotional problems were more likely to transition. An even more powerful predictor of transition was if the family visited a gender specialist, those who did, the youth whose family visited visited a gender specialist were especially likely to transition. And the parents in our survey said that uh, they thought that the specialists were pressuring them to transition their children. And finally, for now, after social transition, parents said that the youth got worse off, less happy.
0: Interesting. Okay. Because that would be, I think, what uh, the devil's advocates would say is, well, of course, this was preceded by unhappiness and uh, emotional problems, because they were a a boy trapped in a woman's body, and so, of course, they were going to be unhappy. It's not that the unhappiness caused this phenomenon, but I think when one puts it into the context of the follow-up, that um, the research showed that it wasn't like, okay, well, that was the problem. This was the fix. And now you're feeling better and you're feeling more yourself. But in fact, it, it, it didn't help. If, if anything, it made it worse. So with your per- permission, Professor, we do have a lot of questions coming in from the audience. How do you feel about that? All right. And uh, there's some here that are, you know, have terminology and things that I don't even understand. So if these are names that come up that you're not familiar with, we got a lot of questions so we can just keep moving along. Um, Let's see. Okay, Zach Carter on Facebook asks, as a scientist, what are your thoughts on the psychologist John Money and what he did with David to David Reimer? I don't know anything
1: about that. So David Reimer is a famous case. Uh, He was an identical twin boy and uh, doctors inadvertently destroyed his penis in a minor operation. And um, in consultation with John Money, who's a famous psychologist, the parents decided to raise uh, David Reimer as a girl And that uh, case ended uh, badly in that sense, because David Reimer was a very unhappy girl. And when the parents finally told Reimer, David Reimer, what uh, the truth was, he immediately switched back to being male. Uh, Tragically, Reimer uh, eventually killed himself but before concluding, as many people do, that it had anything to do with uh, John Money, um, you should know that his identical twin, who didn't experience this at all, had, kill, had already killed himself. And suicide is uh, uh, highly influenced by genetic factors. So I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, it was a tragic story, regardless of that. Uh, and, you know, there's some stories coming out that wh- whose veracity I doubt that uh, John Money uh, sometimes made the twins undress in front of each other and uh, simulate uh, sex play. Uh, I I have talked to people very familiar with um, what has been written and they doubt this. Um, I think on the right, especially, there's been a tendency to demonize John Money. I, I think he probably made a mistake in this case, but it was a difficult case.
0: All right. Um, we have another question here. Facebook, Candice Morena asks, is there any hope you see on the horizon for a civil discussion on these subjects of uh, in the greater academic field or is it too politicized and charged today?
1: That, that's a good question that I certainly wonder about too. Um, I am collaborating with experts who, some of whom are past or present academics, And we will force the issue because we will be collecting uh, good data on this. And if, as we expect, uh, ROGD appears to be well supported empirically, then it it just can't be suppressed any longer. Um, You know, academia is uh, currently problematic in all kinds of ways about all kinds of uh, controversial areas this is trans stuff is only one of them and as an academic uh who you know i i had a very happy career in academia until fairly recently when the when academia has just gone uh berserk um i'm very hopeful that we can go back uh, but i can't promise and i'm worried
0: on facebook george axelopoulos asks it seems like detransitioners are rarely talked about in the media and activists look at them negatively is there any research statistical data that shows the actual number of detransitioners
1: it's very difficult to estimate the number of detransitioners. However, they are being studied. Uh, the Lisa Littman, who is the woman who first uh, proposed the concept and named rapid onset gender dysphoria, she and I are co-authors on a paper that is being reviewed currently, and we uh, are hopeful that it will be published soon. On detransitioners. We have, I I think, 80 or 90 detransitioners in there. Uh, And we have some very interesting findings. Um,
0: Can you share any of them with us before publication or is it embargoed?
1: It's not embargoed. And uh, I don't think that there's uh, any reason why I can't tell you what I'm about to tell you. Uh, At least, Libman, if you see this and you don't approve, please forgive me. Uh, The finding that I will tell you is that these people who are mainly natal females are so much happier after detransition than they were while they were trans identified. It is remarkable how improved they are in their happiness. That's important.
0: Yeah. Well, I think just to kind of put this into context, you and I were talking a little bit before we went live and uh, you were saying that one of the reasons you became interested in this field in in the first place, particularly with regards to, um, you know, the, Ideology behind homosexuality was wanting people to live happy lives, right? Wanting individuals to to be themselves, to to live happy lives, and um, and to not get kind of ensnared in a, a current sort of fad, whether it be uh, gender specialists that um, n- encourage them or send them off in a certain way that, you know, it's, it seems to be you're, um, you're finding that uh, if, in fact, this is someone who is um, a natal male who has is, is gay and, you know, um, or very feminine and finding their way um, has a much higher chance, uh, a lot of the time, maybe not all the time, but in, in many cases of Finding happiness, finding that partner, living a normal life uh, without the medical um, intervention. So, I think that's uh, a, a good context to, to put it in. Is we're, we're not trying to say that we want people to conform to, you know, this standard or that standard, but really trying to get the research and understanding and the findings um, so that we, we know better and are people be better able to inform people um, and their path for them to, to go their own way. So this was an interesting question. It's kind of a step back question, um, a little broadening our, our scope here, which is asking uh, Professor Bailey, do the gender studies programs of today share anything in common with the academic psychology studies from your youth? You studies, you studied in your day.
1: So um, I believe that gender studies programs by and large, the ones that I know about are terrible influences on intellectual inquiry. They have uh, bad uh, hypotheses. They uh use silly jargon and they oppose free inquiry um a lot of the times uh they prefer safety and uh you know they're they know what's good for people and you know shut up <laughs> and uh so i i think a world without gender studies would be a better world um and I, I hope someday the world, uh, I, there will be a world without gender studies. Uh,
0: I'm wondering if you have any perspective on the controversy surrounding things like biological males competing in women's sports. One of my previous guests on the show um, was a bit controversial. It's Kara Dansky. she's the author of The Abolition of Sex. How Transgender, the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls, and um, she pulls no punches. She describes the gender identity movement as, quote, left-wing misogyny on steroids and even calls it a, quote, men's right movement intended to objectify women's bodies. That's pretty harsh. Is there any fairness in that criticism, or is that more of a a left-wing feminist's perspective on, on what's going on?
1: Yeah, I, I think um so you, you kind of asked two questions there and I'll just start with the uh, uh NATO males competing in uh women's sports I think is a terrible idea and um I think it's I think most people think it's a terrible idea. It's been a really bad strategic mistake uh by trans activists. And, pro- and progressive activists pushing for that, um, and you know, I I think many trans women <laughs> also agree that that's a terrible idea, and they don't want it. You know, I I think um, Karen uh, Dansky's uh, ideas a little. Um, over-inclusive. I, I think uh, there are different reasons for uh, transgender uh, identification and practices and uh, different kinds of people behave differently. And some, you know, there are many admirable trans people. uh I, and a number of them think that it's important that they uh, be allowed to transition. And, uh, I think that may well be I, what I would say though, is that, uh, that's a very, um, drastic measure and, uh, we should have good evidence, uh, for them before they make this decision. And, uh, as far as children go i think it should be off the table <laughs> and uh and you know adolescents uh i you know i also would say we should be very cautious and uh i would not let my adolescent child uh even if they were one of the two types that i think are actually uh, real gender dysphoria, that is child onset or uh, autogonophilic gender dysphoria, I would want them to wait um, until they're adults. And I would certainly want them to be informed.
0: Yeah, well, I think in particular, as you were talking about the um, early onset um, childhood, gender dysphoria and that the large percentage of of those young boys with that would later desist and go on to live you know normal lives as 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 male homosexuals right and um it, perhaps to wait and see which way someone's going to go before taking a, you know a drastic surgical interventions so um <coughs> In just the few minutes that we have left, left, I'd like to hear you know circle back to the, that experience with the retraction of the paper. Um, I can only imagine how ex- rightly upsetting that might be for an academic of your stature. I mean, uh, retractions are uh, usually associated with things like plagiarism or. You know some some other kind of really um just unforgivable uh professional transgression and in this case it was um a thoroughly vetted paper so how does all of this affect you on a on a personal level um and how does it how do you fear fear that it might affect peers and what do you see your personal role, not just as an academic working on this particular area of inquiry, but, but also um, as as someone who's in the spotlight and um, who, who might be able to be a lone voice of reason and um, perhaps an example for others to follow?
1: I have very thick skin, both constitutionally and uh, experience has only at the uh, book controversy back in 2003 uh, that was hard and scary because they were trying to get me fired and they were making my life quite difficult. This recent retraction related controversy was nothing compared with wow. that uh the I I did lose some sleep uh not because of concerns about myself but because I was worried that Springer Nature, the company that publishes Archives of Sexual Behavior, would uh, bow to the activists and fire Ken Zucker. Once it became clear they weren't going to do that, uh, I was no longer uh, very affected. The subsequent publicity has been tremendous. It has raised awareness
0: The Streisand effect.
1: (laughs) Yes, both about rapid onset gender dysphoria and the links to which activists will go to suppress it. Uh, To give you an idea, uh, our article, this is an academic journal article. Um, It was published open access, so anybody uh, can go to the website and download it. It has been... um, So it's
0: still there. So when they retract it, they still find it? How does that work?
1: But uh, now uh, they have defaced it by uh, putting the words retracted article on every single page. Uh, I think it's mostly still uh, readable, but anybody who wants an original copy, uh, uh, I'm happy to provide. Um, But... The article has been viewed, uh, I think I checked this morning, 136,000 times, which is quite remarkable for an academic article. Um, So the publisher keeps metrics. Uh, um, Our article is ranked, as of this morning, 36 out of over 400,000. Articles published around the same time, in terms of online attention, including news articles, and so on. Uh, we've wow. had, uh, uh, welcome attention from people potentially interested in helping fund uh, our. We have a big study in the works. That, gosh, we have five minutes left. Uh, I, I hope I can get a minute just to tell you about it.
0: Please go ahead.
1: Yeah, so Lisa Littman, who uh, was the one who first studied rapid onset gender dysphoria, Ken Zucker, who is a a legendary uh, scientist studying gender dysphoria in children and adolescents, and I are the primary investigators on a soon-to-launch study that will consist of surveys of both parents and gender dysphoric youth. We want to survey both, not just the parents, but the youth as well, and follow them up over at least five years, probably more, uh, to see what predicts various outcomes, what predicts who's going to transition versus desist, what predicts who's going to be happy I suggest. With their transition. With their transition or, or with assistance. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: I told you before that I think a lot of the NATO males are motivated by autogonophilia. Well, we'll collect the necessary data to see if that's true. Um, this is going to be a very important study. We, we uh, uh, have said that w- we expect to enroll. 5,000 participants to follow up over uh, time and I don't think we're going to have trouble getting that many people so but it's a lot of work. If if
0: there are parents that want their kids to be enrolled or how can people when uh, we start this
1: we will publicize it widely and parents will uh, have that opportunity and, and I hope that uh, any parents with um, so this is going to be restricted to parents whose uh, gender dysphoric child um, became gender dysphoric between, I think, the ages of 11 and 21 inclusive. Uh, so that's the rapid onset demographic. Uh, so I hope parents, first of all, any parents in that situation, I am sorry you're in that situation, but I do hope they will uh, participate in our study once it starts. I think early fall is the best guess of when it will start.
0: All right. And until then, is the best place to follow you on Twitter or?
1: Follow me on Twitter. Uh, Anybody who has a particular request of me or something they want to tell me, you can email me, me, me Email me at jm, as in John Michael, hyphen, Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, at northwestern.edu. That's my work address. And we also have a uh, research institute that Lisa Lippmann has started. It's icgdr.org.
0: Great. All right, and if perhaps we can just quickly put that in the chat as well as we are um, wrapping up here. So, thank you, Professor. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks for your all you've done and all you're going to continue to do um, in the uh, the years and the decades ahead as we navigate these waters and hopefully get to a um, a, a more uh, objective, a less sort of heated and um, uh, a, a less kind of politicized situation so that we can really look at things as they are and um, help create a context in which parents and children can, um, can, can be cautious, can be prudent, and can find uh, really the best path forward for them. I want to thank everyone else who joined us. Thanks for all of the great questions that you asked today. Uh, as always, folks uh, out there on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram. Um, if you like the content from the Outlaw Society, if you like the work we do, interviews like this, it, you know, takes a lot to put it behind, together behind the scenes. So please consider uh, making a tax deductible donation to support our work. All first-time donations of any size will be matched by our board of pre- trustees. Next week, I will be traveling to speak at Young Americans for Liberty, uh, their uh, revolution conference in Orlando. So my colleague, Professor uh, Senior Scholar Richard Salzman, is going to be taking over with the interview of fellow objectivist scholar Professor Raymond C. Niles in a special um, Atlas Society Asks interview. So please be sure to tune in then. Thank you.